1: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at SportsHistoryNetwork.com.
2: What's up, everybody? I am Ben True, former NFL player, now host of 84 Reasons Podcast on the University of Florida NIL platform. You are listening to the Football Learning Academy Podcast.
0: Welcome to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ken Crippen, and I'm the founder and lead instructor at the FLA. Our special guest this week is former NFL player J.J. Burden. J.J. was an eighth-round pick by Marty Schottenheimer and the Cleveland Browns in the 1988 NFL draft. He spent the first season on injured reserve and was released after the season. He then spent the 89 season on the practice squad of the Dallas Cowboys. When he was released after the 89 season, J.J. was picked up by Marty Schottenheimer, was now with the Kansas City Chiefs, and played five seasons for the team. He finished his career with two seasons with the Atlanta Falcons. He now works as a public speaker, has a blog, and a podcast. He also wrote a book. In this interview, we talk about his football career and what he's been doing since he retired from football. We get into his podcast, blog, and leadership keynote speeches. For the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week, we talk about J.J.'s coach in Cleveland and Kansas City, Marty Schottenheimer. Now let's get to the interview with J.J. Burden. All right, I'd like to welcome J.J. Burden to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. How are you, J.J.?
2: I'm doing excellent. It's good to be on your podcast, Ken. Just looking forward to sharing sharing some thoughts today.
0: I appreciate your time. So, the time that we recorded this podcast, you had just come back from Kansas City Chiefs training camp where they're honoring their alumni. How was that experience?
2: Well, one, that was pretty neat because one, I haven't been back for a while. I have not been back to Kansas City. Uh, The Chiefs does a really good job, like a lot of NFL teams, but they invite the alumni back for certain events. And I just haven't been back there for a while and, you know, raising children and got sick and then COVID and now the children are out of the house and we're empty nesters. So I told my wife, my goal is to make sure I take advantage of these opportunities to go back to Kansas City. So it was nice to get back, be in that environment, see training camp, but also see the changes. I mean, even training camp has really evolved and it's something, it's much bigger than when I was, when I was playing. Well,
0: I'm glad that uh, you're able to uh, take some time to be able to do that. Now, who all was there from the alumni?
2: Well, there was about, I want to say, 20 to 25 guys, um, you know, and, and that was one of the challenges when I got there. I was busy talking to everyone, and I really didn't even watch practice, you know, but but Stefan Page was there, Leonard Griffin, Tim Brown, or Tim Barnett, Daron Cherry, uh, let's see, Chris Penn. And there was a bunch of other ones. There were some that I, and there were some that I never played with. So some guys older than me, and there was a few newer guys that I just met that I didn't even know. So it was nice to see the mix, the variety of alumni.
0: Well, that's good. I'm uh, glad you're able to catch up with some teammates and uh, make some new friends while you're there. Yeah,
2: and that that was that was you know because I went there to really watch practice and and see the tempo and evaluate the receivers and. All of a sudden, I see Willie Davis, who I don't see very often. And so we're talking for a while. Then it's Tim Barton and Stefan Page, who was basically a mentor for myself when I was in Kansas City. And then, Ken, next to you know, practice was over, you know.
0: <laughs> any uh, any desire to step back on that field again for training camp or uh, was that completely gone?
2: Oh, yeah, that's that's definitely completely gone. It's, you know, I'm just trying to stay healthy and as long as I can. But, you know, it you still kind of get the I don't know, you get the feeling of football season and training camp this time of the year. It causes you to naturally reflect on your career and what it was like. It just everything kind of comes back to mind. And it's even though it's been 24 or five years since I played, you still get those the chills when it's time for the NFL season to start, because you know what it was like to, you know what it's like to play at that level. All
0: right now let's um, step back to your college days. You went to the university of Oregon. Why did you pick them?
2: I picked them specifically because I was a track and field athlete. And that was really my focus. I was a top long jumper, high hurdler. And even though I was the number one wide receiver in the state of Oregon, I was 5'9", 133 pounds. No division one college offered me a football scholarship. So I took it kind of personal. I took it as an insult because there were guys that were getting offered that I was like, I know I was way better than. So I kind of I formed this game plan. And I thought, OK, wherever I go and run track. I'm going to see if I can walk on in football one of the years. And as I was being recruited by all these schools for track, Oregon was the only school that did not think it was a crazy idea for me to try out for the football team one year. And they said, Hey, you come run for us. And if you can convince the coach your second year, you have our blessing. So I just saw that as an opportunity and they held true. And the second year, I literally begged Rich Brooks, the head coach, to let me walk on. And I wore him down because he finally said, okay. And I walked on that fall. And I guess you can say the rest is history from there.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, look at it, I think it was what, 2010, you were inducted into their athletic hall of fame for your track career. So, I mean, what was it like getting that call?
2: That was awesome. It really was. And for a couple of reasons, one is that, you know, Oregon is known for its track program. We have one of the premier track programs in the U S and I was on a very special team my freshman year. And I didn't realize it at the time, but there were Olympians on there and we won the national championship. And what's interesting is throughout the rest of my career, well, actually throughout my entire athletic career, I've never won a team championship. I've never been on a winning team in football that's won a championship. And so when I got that call, I was like, you know what? That is the only team championship I've ever won. And I cherish that that experience. And so, um, you know, I, as I wear my Oregon ring, everyone's always like, you know, is that a bowl ring? Is that a football ring? I goes, no. This is the national championship ring. This is the championship. The only one I was a part of.
0: Mm. What was that uh, induction ceremony like?
2: Oh, that was something special because all the guys come back, guys that uh, you ran with and you haven't seen in many, many years. But right away, it's like there was an instant connection because we all realized that we were part of something special. And it's nice to be recognized because – um, I never thought I would be inducted in Oregon's Hall of Fame, really in anything because, uh, I mean, in football, because I didn't really have a very good college football career. But it's nice that uh, I wasn't forgotten for, for track. And we, uh, we certainly all did appreciate that recognition.
0: Now, let's get back to uh, football at Oregon. Um, you were injured both your junior and senior years. Were you surprised to receive an invitation to the Combine?
2: Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Because I didn't do much. My first two years, I backed up two receivers. I caught three balls my freshman year, three balls my sophomore year. And then my junior year, when I was the starter, I had my shot. I broke, let's see, I broke my arm against Nebraska, the fourth or fifth game of the season. And then, then my senior year, and this is supposed to be the year, and then I severely twist my ankle against UCLA, the fourth or fifth game. So I only had like one touchdown, 19 catches. And I remember when I got this letter from the NFL combine, first I was like, what's the combine? I had no idea what the combine was. And then when I found out that, hey, they're inviting the top 300 college football players, and that means the top 40 wide receivers in our nation are being invited, there was a little hesitation like, okay, why are they inviting me? I didn't do much. So um, yeah, that was a that was a shock and it was it was even more of a shock when i went to the combine
0: now tell me about that experience of being at the combine
2: yeah that was an eye opening experience and i just remember going to the combine in indianapolis and sitting at a table and waiting for the receivers to get their physicals and all of a sudden i realized i'm at the table with tim brown uh aaron cox who went in the first round flipper anderson Uh, Who was the other guy? Anthony Miller, Sterling Sharp. I'm at a table with these guys and I'm thinking like he was all American. He was a hall of famer. He's going to be a first round. And I'm sitting there thinking like, okay, what am I doing here? I mean, I really started questioning, you know, my ability to really play the game. And then when we started doing the testing, I test really well. I mean, you want me to run fast? You want me to jump? I can do that. And I think that it wasn't like my best in terms of I thought in my 40 and all that, but I did good enough to create some interest. And when I left there, my agent said that I was the the mysterious track guy who could catch the football. That's kind of how they labeled me. Track guy who can actually catch the football. So um, but I wasn't really expecting anything because Ken, my heart was on track. I was not thinking about the NFL. It was all about track. I had won pack 10s the year before. I qualified for nationals. I qualified for the 1980 Olympic trials and a long jump. So my whole focus was that. It was never really football. But I thought, let's just go through the process. Let's go to the combine. Let's just go through all these opportunities so that I don't regret it later and wish – 30, 40 years down the road that I at least went to check it out. And that's really what I was trying to do. Just kind of checking it out, measuring myself against the other athletes just in case.
0: Now, what were your thoughts and what were your feelings when you were drafted by the the Browns? Well, my first thought was
2: shock. (laughs) Uh, Again, I was not convinced I was going to get drafted. I remember I didn't even have an agent. And then my head coach, Rich Brooks, said, you need an agent. And he had... Frank Bauer, who was the agent for Chris Miller and Anthony Newman, who played at Oregon, went early on in the draft. And he said, hey, I want you to be JJ's agent. And I was like, OK, whatever, because I I just wasn't convinced on it to the point of where the draft back then was two days. And the first day, I think, was one first round through the fifth round. And I just I'm going to class. I didn't pay attention to it. my agent said you could get drafted. I was like, no, nah, I'm going to class. So I went to class. And then the second day I tried to do the same thing. Cause I thought this is not going to happen, but I went ahead and stayed. And I remember getting the call from my agent and he's like eighth round Cleveland Browns. And I'm like, what? He goes, I got to get off the phone. So I get this call and Marty Schottenheimer, the head coach for the Browns called me and I had no idea who he was. I didn't know who Marty was. I didn't know who the head coach was Cleveland. Cause I wasn't paying much attention with all of this, but I quickly realized that okay, this is really happening. I got drafted and and there was a moment of excitement. Um, but again, I even told Marty, hey, I gotta finish my track season before I even think about doing anything in football. So I was still track, 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 not thinking about the NFL.
0: Now you were injured soon after the draft, correct? What happened?
2: Yeah. So basically, when there's the um after the draft, there's a rookie camp, a mini camp. And they want you to come out the next week and you do, You go through a three-day practice. It's an opportunity for them to meet you and see you up close. But I, um, again, not having a desire to play in the NFL, I didn't want to pass up the opportunity to go check it out. So the following week, I fly out to Cleveland. I go through their three-day mini camp. And the second or oh, third practice, I tear up my ACL ligament during one-on-ones. And that was probably the first real adversity i experienced as an athlete because you know with an acl you're you're done for a year Mm -hmm. but that's when it shifted that's when i went from okay track is over i can't finish that so hello nfl and that was when i started thinking about the nfl but ken i was more thinking about let let me get healthy cleveland's got to give me back 100 percent once i get 100 percent I can go back and run track. So that was kind of the game plan that first year as, a, as I was on IR with the Browns. But I specifically remember, Ken, about halfway through the season, because every day I'd have to go to practice, and I'd have to learn the offense. I did everything except for practice. I'm sitting in a meeting, and I was watching the wide receivers, and it just clicked, and I thought, you know what? I can play at the NFL level if I wanted to. And that was when the mindset just kind of shifted and said, you know what? I'm going to play in the NFL because I went from not believing I can play in the NFL, but having the opportunity to sit on IR for a year, no pressure, but just learning and growing and getting bigger. That really turned out to be a blessing in disguise. And I think that's when everything changed for me mentally, knowing that I really can't play at this level.
0: Yeah. I mean, that mental shift, you know, can do a lot, you know, as you had mentioned. So just having that positive attitude and knowing that, yes, I can do this. I have the skills to be able to do this makes a big difference.
2: It really does because it's interesting how things worked out because had I not got injured, I don't even know if I would have pursued the NFL. I'm pretty sure I would have gone back and finished track and see how far I could go. But because of the injury, I got the opportunity. This is really important because think about rookies when they come in at the NFL. It's a big adjustment. Mentally, physically, emotionally, and not every player has the luxury of just sitting back and watching and learning without the pressure to perform. And that worked out really well for me because that's where I started building my confidence, my belief, started understanding and and watching the veterans. I was just like a little sponge watching everything that they did. And that better prepared me for the next uh, season when I went through training camp.
0: Now You had mentioned Marty Schottenheimer. He obviously drafted you in Cleveland. And then after you were released by the Cowboys, he picked you up when he was in Kansas City. How did you feel knowing that he saw enough in you to want to take a chance on you in Kansas City?
2: Well, I felt privileged to have that relationship with Marty because when I finished with Dallas, Jimmy Johnson, it was his first year, he pretty much told me to go do something else. He just didn't think I was going to be good enough to play in the NFL. But... I knew I could play. It was about getting healthy. And I got healthy during that season with the Cowboys on their practice squad. And so as I'm going into that third year, I realized that I got one shot. Because if you don't make it by your third year, you kind of get labeled. So I had to choose the right team. And there were about five teams that wanted me. And Kansas City was one. And I thought, being Marty's the head coach, I felt he was going to give me the best opportunity. Because he drafted me in Cleveland. And there's something about coaches when they draft guys. There's that connection there. And I also recognize that the Chiefs were lacking in speed. They didn't have anybody that was running under a 4-5. or And I was coming in running a 4-3. So I thought I had a competitive advantage that the Chiefs could use. So um, it turned out to be the right decision.
0: Now, at the time of this recording, Marty's a semifinalist for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. In your opinion, what's his case for the Hall of Fame?
2: I would say consistency in terms of his ability to create winning programs. Uh, Marty obviously did not win the Super Bowl, but he did everything else. You know, he's got an amazing record as far as wins, as far as getting into the playoffs. Um, He has an amazing Uh, Track record with players. I mean, you talk to all the players that played for Marty and they have nothing but positive things to say in terms of how he impacted them then and then life after the game. And then you look at his coaching tree. There were so many coaches that were on his staff that went on to become head coaches and some of them won a Super Bowl. So I just think that Marty has done enough to be classified or be inducted into the hall of fame. And so we're certainly hoping that happens.
0: Did you uh, keep up a relationship with him after you retired?
2: Yeah, I sure did. The best of my ability I did. Um, I am. Um, I remember when he got inducted into the Chiefs hall of fame, I remember being there for the chief's weekend and, and there was a couple of opportunities where I saw him here and there, but the one time that really st- stands out to me was the last time I talked to him. As you know, I'm a professional speaker and I speak throughout the country. And I was speaking at an event in Minnesota. I think it was Minnesota. And to my surprise, I'm giving this presentation and I look down in the audience and I see Brian Schottenheimer. Brian Schottenheimer, who's the offensive coordinator for the Cowboys. And I'm like, Brian, you know, well, Brian had heard I was speaking there, so he came, and so we got to talk afterwards, which was cool, because Brian was just a ball boy back when I was in Kansas City, but we went out to dinner, and he calls his dad right there, and he gives me the phone, and this was the last time I got to talk to Marty, and it was so cool, because You know, it just gave me another opportunity to share with him how much I appreciate him and just the impact he made on me as a player and as a man. And that was a very special moment. And I didn't realize that would be the last chance I get an opportunity to speak with him.
0: When did you know it was time to hang up the cleats and start your next career?
2: Well, for me, going into that ninth year, because the two years in Atlanta didn't turn out the way that I had hoped. I had a lot of injuries during those years, and I tore up my ACL ligament like the second to last game of the season. And as I'm going through rehab, and I came back really strong, I was healthy, I was ready to go as a free agent. But then, Ken, I started thinking about how, you know, I was never supposed to be in the NFL. Uh, The average NFL career I heard has dropped to like less than two years, and I've already got nine years, and I'm thinking like – you know, I was able to do something that many people aren't able to do. Let's retire now, walk away on our own terms, and transition to life after the game because I was ready to do that. And it was nice to be able to make that decision because for a lot of players, that's not easy to do. But I recognized what I had already accomplished was pretty amazing. I mean, I played nine years at 5'10", 157 pounds, and I've done a little research on that, Ken. And you know that in the last 30, 40 plus years, there's not been an NFL player who's had a longer career than me that weighed under 160 pounds. Wow. You know, that, that's something pretty unique. Right. But I recognized that. And I said, you know what? It's time to move on. And I was happy to walk away and begin that uh, next phase of my life.
0: We're going to take a quick break, then continue with our interview with JJ Burden. If you like what you're hearing, consider pressing that donate button in the podcast player. That money goes to continuing to provide quality content as well as to help retired players in need. If you're enjoying this interview, make sure you visit the FLA website at www.football-learning-academy.com. There you'll find more archival interviews such as Don Shula, Mercury Morris, Ken Riley, and Maxie Bond. We also have a variety of other interviews, such as Amy Trask, the first female CEO of an NFL franchise. We have broadcasting and sports writing legend Leslie Visser, teaching a mini masterclass class on interviewing. Nolan Harrison, a former player and current senior director at the NFL Players Association. Shannon Easton, the first female on-field official in NFL history, and many more. To get access to these interviews, classes on the history of the game, a blog, and much more, go to www.football-learning-academy.com. We're back to our interview with JJ Burden. Now you talked about life after football. What did you do to prepare for that?
2: Well, what I started doing right away was networking. Um, I started networking and making a lot of contacts in the business world because I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I also took the opportunity when I was in the NFL during the off season, I would do speaking engagements because there's opportunities for players to visit schools, visit communities, and just speak, go out there in the public and share your stories. And, and we would even earn a little income, but speaking in public was something I was not comfortable with, but I thought here's an opportunity for me to develop the skill that maybe I could use later. So Besides that, and obviously networking, I wanted to make sure I had opportunities that I could, you know, that I could consider going into once I finished. Now, I did think about coaching, like a lot of players, they think about coaching after their career. And I dabbled in that a little bit. I I coached some high school, I coached high school track and football. I ran a free instructional football camp in Portland, Oregon with another player, Anthony Newman for 10 years. And I wanted to see if I really wanted to go into coaching. And one of the reasons why I didn't was one is I didn't like the idea of only working with one group, one school, one community, one area because I wanted to make a bigger impact. How can I impact more lives out there? And that was one of the reasons why I didn't go into coaching also too, Ken. I knew that if I wanted to coach, I wanted to coach at the highest level. I wanted to coach at the NFL level, but coaches don't have much of a home life at all. And they lack job security. And I just didn't want to put my wife and my children through that again. So, um, so yeah, I got involved in a couple businesses first. I, I networked with some doctors in Kansas city and I became owner of a durable medical equipment company. And we had some physical therapy clinics. And then I had a buddy who had a, a, a fitness machine in Portland or Atlanta called Pro Spot Fitness. And I was a minority owner and the West Coast sales manager. And I was in those businesses for about 10 years and got a lot of great experience. Love working with people. Didn't like some of the headaches that came with it, but I did that for about 10 years. And eventually I got involved with what I do now. I'm a professional speaker. I have an online health and wellness business. And I like those because they I'm in more control. So it's, they're my businesses. I make the decision, but they're all about helping other people. And now I have, I developed, how do you put it? I have the platform to take what I learned as a professional athlete because there's so many, there's so many things about being a professional athlete that relate to being a professional business person. And, and that's what I love to convey and teach others who are trying to learn how to, how do you perform at a high level? How do you overcome obstacles? How do you maintain your focus? It's a a lot of the same things we learn in the NFL.
0: Now with your public speaking, you do motivational speaking, you do um, leadership speaking. There are two people that you played with in football. So I want to see how you connect the lessons that you learned from football to what you're doing with public speaking. And those two people are Marty Schottenheimer and Joe Montana. What leadership
2: lessons did you learn from both of them? Well, first I would say with Marty, I thought Marty was a great motivator and a great teacher. Uh, I have never been around someone who had the ability to tap into your brain, tap into your heart and say the right things at the right time to get you to do what you need to do. Cause that's what motivation is all about is trying to move you in a certain direction. And Marty had that ability to do that. And that's one of the things I learned from him is like, how do you motivate someone? How do you move them with your words? With Joe, I think it was more leadership. I learned a lot of leadership um, success tips from Joe Montana. I mean, here's one of the greatest to ever play the game. And I remember when he joined our team, That's what I was thinking. Success leaves clues. This guy won four Super Bowls. He's played 14 years. What can I learn from him? And there were so many things that I learned from him just watching him. But I thought the biggest thing was the concept of leaders lead from the front. Leaders set the pace. They set the example. They don't wait for someone else. And that's what Montana came. Did he came in? He didn't wait for us to lead. He took the lead and he set the example. He set the pace. And such leadership is very contagious because he just had this Montana effect where he just pulled us all right along with him and it lifted up our game. I mean, that first year, we're one game away from the Super Bowl. You know, so he made a huge impact from a leadership standpoint and so many other things. But but I and I love to incorporate some of that in my keynotes when I'm talking to different companies because they want to know at times what did a leader like what did a leader like Montana do to, you know, carry the team to move the team? Well, here's some of the things that he did. So, um, yeah, a lot of success tips I've learned from them that I share today.
0: Talking about tips. Say, for example, I wanted to get into public speaking. What tips would you give me for starting out in that career?
2: Yeah, the first thing I would say is, I'd say, Ken, okay, here's what you got to think about. This is a starting point because there's so many speakers out there and ultimately we're competing with all of them, whether they're male, female. So you got to be able to figure out this, what makes you the first, the only, and the best, meaning that what separates you from all the other speakers out there what makes you different what makes you unique and i would say once you figure that out you build your brand around that you build your brand around that because there's so many leadership speakers out there there's so many motivational speakers but what makes you the first the best the only and i'd say start there and you build from there your content and your and your you know your presence on your website and all of that and i'm sharing that because when i became a speaker it took me a while to figure that out. It really did. But now, like I mentioned to you earlier, I've got that because when I can you know, speak to companies and they see me, man, you're a little guy. How in the world did you play this many years at 5'10", 57 pounds? I can clearly show them based on my ability to do that. Here's what makes me the first, the only, the best. And it's spread throughout my content as I talk about what it's like to win as an underdog. You know, how do you close the underdog gap? How do you seize your opportunities? What does it take? So that's where I say as a starting point, you got to figure out what makes you unique and different from the other speakers out there. Because what I've noticed that. When companies look at you and they're looking for a speaker, they're going to have, okay, we're looking at four or five different speakers. Here's our theme. Well, this person offers this, this person offers that, this person offers that. They're going to say, okay, which one has something a little extra? Well, when companies choose me, they say, well, JJ, I mean, he's this little guy that played nine years in the NFL, I'm sure he's got something to help our audience understand what it takes to overcome obstacles, to overcome challenges, to really raise the level of your performance and make it to the top and then stay at the top. Because as you know, making it to the NFL is hard. Staying there is even harder.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now you're talking about figuring out your brand. Um, Part of that is you were learning that on your own, but one of the blog posts that I read from you is making sure that you get yourself a mentor. When did you get a mentor in order to be able to focus on improving your skills as a public speaker and a leader?
2: Excellent question. I definitely think having a mentor, coach, accountability partner is a success tip. So about seven years ago when I started realizing that this is what I want to do because I was in, I'm in direct sales. I'm with a company called Isogenics, and I've been in there for about 17 years and they kept putting me on stage. And I was speaking to audiences, a thousand, 5,000, and one time 15,000 people. And that was when I was like, okay, I can do this. I'm comfortable. Now it's time to launch my speaking business, but how do I do that? And coincidentally, a friend of mine, Hassan Kareem, he invites me to this leadership um, conference that was happening here, hosted by Dr. Will Moreland. And I didn't want to go, but he's like, you got to come. This guy could be your mentor. He could really launch your speaking business. Anyway, so I went to the three-hour three event and I knew right away as a Dr. Will Moreland That's going to be my mentor. And he became my mentor for that from that day. And he helped me launch my speaking business. He took me through all the steps and what it takes to be able to do that. He helped me write my first book when opportunity knocks, you know, so he played a key role in helping me launch that. But what's nice about it is, is that I still work with him and he's always helping me kind of refine it because you're always trying to get better. It's one of the things I learned in the NFL is you're on a constant growth journey. You're always trying to get better. And that's what I continue to do now as a speaker. So yeah, highly recommend a mentor, especially someone who's already walked the road you're traveling on, because it's like it's like one of the ways to cut down the inevitable learning curve, which there certain was a learning curve. But Dr. Will Moreland helped me tremendously.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the Kaizen mindset of constant continuous improvement. And whether it's your personal life, whether it's your professional life, you know, embodying that mindset is what makes you better and helps you continue to improve throughout life.
2: Yeah. Great point. And, and it, yeah, it's it's not just sports. It's not just, spe- like you said, it's everything, family life, personal life, you know, whatever the goals are. And it's like, when you follow me and one's follow me on social media, I have my podcast called the Daily Miss, Motivational Inspirational Success Tips. That's really what I'm trying to teach people is that if you develop the habits of success, they're going to stay with you no matter what you're doing. And, and again, I know I keep referring to, but I learned a lot of this in the NFL because you have to be on your A game every day. You have to treat it like every day is game day. And the guys that had the ability to keep raising the bar every day, if they can stay healthy, those are the ones that have longer careers. Versus, Ken, I would see guys that come in that were amazing college athletes, but they couldn't figure that out. You couldn't rest on your laurels from college. Everybody here is great. How can you get better? How can you improve? And some guys couldn't push through that, you know, and mentally it would just take them out.
0: Yeah, now you brought up your podcast. So one of my favorite episodes from your podcast is Stop With The Excuses. Uh, I want to read a quote from that. This is an excuse is a tool for building a monument of nothing. They do not serve a purpose when it comes to achieving your goals. Can you elaborate
2: a little bit more on that? Yeah, that's something I first heard when I was in college. And it it always stuck with me because I've been around so many different people in my life. Um, I had family members that were more athletic than me. I was around great athletes in college and even the NFL too. And they would r- they would use these excuses in terms of why they didn't do this or why they didn't do that. And it never got them anywhere It never moved the needle. It never allowed them to excel and move on. And so what I tried to teach them was even today is like, what can you learn from that situation? If it doesn't go well, it doesn't go right. What can you learn from it? You know, why did this happen? And how can you turn that into an opportunity? So it's just trying to get people to flip it. An excuse does nothing for you. You know, what can you learn from it? How can you move forward? And it's unfortunate because so many people fall into the trap of excuses and they don't need, they don't get anywhere. And to really be able to move the needle, you got to be able to challenge yourself from day to day. And I always have this mindset that. It's not about making an excuse for like maybe this didn't go this way or that didn't go that way. I want to blame this person on the point here. No, you look in the mirror. There's no you look in the mirror every day. It's you versus you. It's not you versus someone else. It's not you versus your excuses. It's you versus you because you have the ability to control what happens next.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. As a leader, you never blame anybody else. It's always you. It's If your team succeeds, it's because the team did a great job. If the team fails, it's because I didn't give them what they needed to succeed.
2: Yeah, yeah, very important point. And for all leaders to understand that, I have a keynote that's called There Better Be an I in Team, and it's a spin on there is no I in team, which is true because you're all about team and put the team's goals ahead of your own. But when you're a leader, there better be – there better be an INT because you have to do your job first. That, again, impresses upon you. You set the pace for the team. You set the example for the team. If you want your team to raise their performance, you do it first. Because as you know, when such leadership shows such an example, the people that really want to win and that really want to be there, that really want to raise the level of their performance, they will follow right along. And, And such leadership is very contagious.
0: Now, in your podcast and on your blog, you use the acronym FASCO. So what is FASCO and how do you use it to become a better leader?
2: Yeah, FASCO was an acronym I came up with because I would use the word separately in my presentation. One day I thought, let's just wrap these together. So basically, it means failures, adversities, setbacks, and challenges and obstacles. And as we all know, it's a part of life. However you want to phrase it, it's when something unexpected happens, there's something that's blocking you from achieving a goal, you experience a difficulty or struggle. To me, it's something that's really testing you to see how bad you really want that goal. And the whole teaching point behind it is to use these opportunities for breakthroughs, you know, breakthroughs. If you experience adversity like I did when I tore my ACL ligament up, I had a choice. That moment, that could take me down and out. Or it could take me to bigger and better things. And that's what I really try to impress upon people. When you have the FASCO moments, you have a choice. And if you make the decision to allow that moment to take you to bigger and better things, that's a new starting line. That's a new starting point. Now it's based on what you do from there. But as you know, it's all mental. It's about how you perceive it, how you think it, how you see it. And that's what I want people to understand about FASCO is that those can be some of the greatest mentoring and coaching and teaching moments. If you allow them to be, if you learn from the experience. And that goes back to what you just asked about um, excuses. I would see others use those as an opportunity to make an excuse. You know, if I tore my ACL ligament, so this is how I tore it up. I'm running a one. I uh, um, I'm doing one-on-ones and Gary Danielson. I don't know if you remember him. He was the quarterback. He underthrows the ball. I got the guy beat by a five yards. He underthrows. I plant and I come back and I tear up my ACL. Yeah. I mean, what if I just use that as an excuse? It's the quarterback's fault. It's the turf's fault. I mean, what is that going to do for me? Nothing. Instead, it was like, why did it happen? What can I learn from it? How can I turn this into an opportunity? And I'll tell you one thing I learned from that. I avoided the weight room for many, many years. <laughs> I did not work on my legs, but that caused me to spend more time working on my legs, building up the muscles in them. And I played nine years on that, on that repair knee. So um, yeah, I'm I'm a big advocate of helping people understand the FASCO moments are opportunities for growth.
0: Now, when you were talking about that, you're talking about goals and I know you've got the more better, different Um, mindset to be able to set your goals. So how do you use that? And what are your goals for this year?
2: Yeah, I typically like to use that in different parts of the year. I love using it at the beginning of the year. I love using it halfway through the year because, you know, those are typically times when people start thinking about new year or, you know, we're halfway through the year and I got to finish strong, but that more, better, different causes you to really look at yourself Honestly, if you got a particular goal you're pursuing, what can you do more of? You know, as you evaluate what you've done so far, what can you do more of? Where can you be better? And how can you be different? And this to me is that growth mindset where you're constantly trying to get better, trying to get better. And I use that those parts of the years, but sometimes I just use them. I tell you, sometimes, Ken, if I have a just an unproductive month or unproductive week, I will wake up and say, Okay how can I be better than I was last week? What I need to do more of, Where I need to be better, what do I need to do differently? So it's just another way to kind of keep challenging yourself personally. It's another way to help you avoid the complacency trap, which is something many people fall into. I saw athletes fall into the complacency trap. You have a great game, you have a great year and the next year they come in with the same attitude. I'm just going to do what I did the game before the or the year before, but that's not how you get better. So that's kind of how the more better, different works for me. And as I look at this phase and, and both of my businesses, I have several different goals. You know, as a speaker, there's certain things I want to do. I'm writing a brand new keynote right now, which I thought was really important because my number one keynote is seizing your opportunities. Everybody loves it. But now I need to add another one, which is going to be winning as an underdog, which is going to be directed more towards those who feel like an underdog, whether personally or a company. And then I'm considering writing book number two. (laughs) I've been going back and forth on this one, Ken. I wrote my first book five years ago, and I knew I was going to write another one. And then I had several reporters who used to cover me for the Chiefs and in Oregon and both said, why didn't you write an autobiography? They said you could teach from your autobiography. So I'm going back and forth on that. I actually even interviewed a ghostwriter because this time I'll use a ghostwriter. So that may or may not be the goal, but it's something <laughs> I'm definitely considering. Um, but no, I like, I like, I'm a, like you said, I'm big into setting goals because not having a goal, um, it's like taking a bow and arrow and aiming at no bullseye, there's no target. You know, there's nothing to track. There's nothing to aim for. There's nothing to challenge you. And I, I'm a firm believer, whether you're setting small goals, medium range or long range goals, you got to have something that you're striving after.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you if you were going to do another book, especially an autobiography. So you've answered yeah. that question.
2: <laughs> yeah, we were just talking about it yesterday because my wife is like, so are you going to do this or not? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm going back and forth. But I, like I said, one thing I learned from that first experience, one is, that was my first book. So I, writing a second one, I'm excited about because I just think it'll be even better. But I don't want to physically write it this time. I'm hiring a ghost writer and I'll let them write it. I'll give them the information because I realize kind of my bandwidth. Um, but I think it could be pretty good because and the whole goal of that book really is to it is the underdog story, but as you and people learn more about just my childhood, how I was raised and just I had a lot of, I had dealt with a lot of challenges, but the one thing I did that I hope everyone understand is that I never took the victim mentality. It was always, how can I be the victor? How can I rise above this? How can I really make something out of this? And that's kind of always been my mindset. And I think that's how I ended up in the NFL because, oh, you're too small. Oh, really? Okay. Let me show you. I can do this. And that's, You know, having that mindset. But if I can impress upon that or teach others that it doesn't matter what the odds are, it doesn't matter what the situation is. If you want something and you're willing to commit and do the work, the possibilities are endless.
0: Well, if you're still interviewing ghostwriters, just let me know.
2: (laughs) Oh, good to know. I didn't know that. Good to know. Yeah.
0: yeah. Now, what advice? I think I know how you're going to answer this question. What advice would you give to your younger self?
2: Oh, to my younger self, I might surprise you on this one, though. Um, I probably am going to surprise you on this because my younger self, I probably would say this. I was a very good student in high school and college, but I didn't challenge myself academically. I got good grades, but I I took easy classes for those A's. And I think I would tell my younger self is don't be afraid to challenge yourself academically like you did athletically. you Because I just I felt that I didn't really push myself in the classroom like I could have. And and that's probably what I would tell my younger self. Now, I don't know what that would create, but I just think mentally for myself, I know that. I could have challenged myself better act academically. So I would say, take the harder classes, take the math, take the, the 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 foreign language classes, take the science classes, don't avoid those classes, really challenge yourself because I know for myself that when I'm faced with the challenge, I'm gonna rise above. I'm gonna do what it takes to get it done. So that's probably what I would tell my younger self.
0: All right, finally, how can people learn more about the stuff that you're doing, as well as be able to follow you on social media.
2: Yeah, thanks for asking that. So I would say one, jjburden.com. That's a good place to start. That's kind of the hub for my speaking business. Uh, then I'd also say jjburdenhealth.com. That's connected to my health and wellness business. And then connect with me on social media. I'm on all the social media platforms under the username JJ Burden. I'm very active. I think it's a privilege and an honor to share content, to give value on social media. So yeah, definitely follow me on any of the platforms and and connect with me. And if you want to order my book, go to JJBurden.com because when they're ordered through there, I get to personally sign those. So that's a good place to start.
0: Very nice. And I'll definitely put those links on the uh, page for this podcast. JJ, awesome. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it.
2: No, thank you, Ken. I really appreciate you reaching out and giving me the opportunity to share. I don't I don't take these interviews for granted. So thank you and um, keep up the good work.
0: I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our interview with J.J. Burden. But we're not done. For our Pro Football History Nugget of the Week, we focus on the career of Marty Schottenheimer, J.J.'s coach in Cleveland and Kansas City. Schottenheimer was a linebacker for the Buffalo Bills and Boston Patriots from 1965 through 1970. In 1971, he was traded to the Pittsburgh Steelers, then traded again to the Baltimore Colts, where he then retired that same year. Schottenheimer then started coaching with stints with the New York Giants, Detroit Lions, and Cleveland Browns before getting his first head coaching job with those same Cleveland Browns. He then had head coaching gigs with Kansas City, Washington, and San Diego, before spending a year with the Virginia Destroyers of the United Football League. Over his 21 seasons as head coach in the NFL, his teams won eight division titles and made the playoffs 13 times. He has a winning record of 200, 126, and 1, or a winning percentage of 61.3%. In the interview, J.J. mentioned the coaching tree of Schottenheimer. It consists of names like Bruce Arians, Bill Cowher, Tony Dungy, Herm Edwards, Lindy Infante, Hugh Jackson, Mike McCarthy, Wade Phillips, and Art Schell, among others. If you expand it out to the assistance of his assistants, it's even more impressive, including Hall of Famer Dick LeBeau. Before the start of the 2023 NFL season, Schottenheimer was ranked eighth all-time in wins and is listed directly behind legendary coach Paul Brown. Of the seven coaches ahead of him, five are in the Hall of Fame. The other two are Andy Reid and Bill Belichick, who are obviously still coaching, and have tracks to be inducted into the Hall of Fame in the future. That's all that we have for this week. Stay tuned to our social media channels to stay up to date on our episodes. You can find the links on the main page of this podcast. If you like what you've heard, consider pressing that donate button in the podcast player. That money goes to continuing to provide quality content, as well as to help retired players in need. Thank you for listening to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. To learn more about the FLA, go to our website at www. Football Dash Learning Dash Academy dot com.
1: Hey there, sports history fan! This is Arnie Chapman